Hello, my name is Julia Streets and welcome to Diversity Podcast, talking about diversity and inclusion in financial services. In each episode, we seek to shine a light on successful progress, call out areas requiring further focus and offer practical ideas to help drive change. Throughout the series, time and again, our guests place considerable value on the contribution of allies, role models and champions of change. And today we are joined by two such champions, Robert McKillop from Aberdeen Standard Investments and Ruben Kostuki from the Makers Academy. Robert McKillop is the Global Head of Product at the newly formed Aberdeen Standard Investments, where he is a member of the Global Clients Group Management Team. He has enjoyed 20 plus years in global investment management, having served as Japanese portfolio manager and a senior executive on the global equities desk. And as a senior executive, Robert embraces the value of diversity championship. And last year, he was a finalist at the Champion for Women category at the prestigious Women in Banking and Finance Awards. Robert, welcome. Good morning, Julia. Ruben Kostuki is the Chief Operating Officer of Makers Academy, which he tells me is Europe's largest software engineering bootcamp. In his career, Ruben has started a number of early stage enterprises. He was part of the inaugural Entrepreneur First cohort and was entrepreneur in residence at Forward Labs. Ruben is responsible for the Academy's growth strategy with a clear ambition to train an ever more inclusive and diverse range of students, all as a mean to helping companies fill the only widening skills gap. Ruben, welcome and thank you for joining us. Thank you very much. At the start of each show, we invite each guest to tell us a bit about what they're up to. So, Robert, let let me start with you. Thank you, Julia. As Global Head of Product, I sit on our Global Asset Management Executive. So I have some collective responsibility for our diversity and inclusion agenda. I'm also specifically one of our corporate sponsors of our program. However, just as excitingly for me in my day job as Global Head of Product, I'm responsible for the development and maintenance of all of our investment products and solutions for our clients around the world. So innovation is a key part of my day job, and I strongly believe that the bedrock of good innovation is intellectual diversity. So alongside my role as a corporate advocate and a sponsor for our DNI program, I have a more direct interest in, in that whole agenda. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Robert. And Ruben, we talk about innovation. I, I imagine that's the heart of everything you think about. What are you focused on? Well, so first, first of all, I'm not an expert at diversity, inclusivity, intersectionality and conscious biases or any of these things. What I am is somebody who runs an organization that actually changes the face of technology. So when we set out Makers Academy, it was to just basically solve the digital skills gap. There's a problem in education and the numbers we'll talk about later in education are terrible, definitely in computer science when it comes to the gender gap. Uh, But so is recruitment and and employment badly done. And so over time, even though it wasn't our purpose, diversity and inclusivity has become key to what we do because it's not enough to just train people. The the problem is, and again, we'll cover it later on, hopefully, is, is that technology is at the core of everything that we're going to be using in the future. And if the f- workforce in the technology sector isn't as representative of society, then we really risk creating a widening gap in everything in society. And that's where artificial intelligence comes in, et cetera, et cetera. So I, I come from the point of view of somebody who's actually creating an organization that is training people and, and solving that gap. 
Okay. And, and let, so let's pick up that straight away. Let's get straight into that because I think I think that is very important. So so where do you see where where do you focus most when you start out trying to think about the the widening gap that firms are thinking looking at and where you look at the skills gap that schools and institutions start from? Where do you begin? Well, so we begin by 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 div- by solving this problem, realizing it's not a problem of education or a problem of recruitment employment. It's both. And the problem is that in the past, and until Makers Academy, it's always been you're an education company, a university, and your job is to educate. Or you're a recruitment company, or you're an employment, and your job is to acquire this talent. There's no link between the two. So what we did at the beginning of Makers Academy, and since the start, is by integrating employment and education. Because the two things need to fit hand in hand. Because once you understand what the market needs, and you can influence also how the markets acquire its talent, you can also find that talent and train it uh, accordingly. So, so the way we look at diversity and inclusivity, first of all, is from the angle of inclusivity. Actually, that's the key for us. Because diversity is only the start. It's, it's great to have diversity. But the problem is, and we see it everywhere, is that it's very, it gets very qualitative when you go about, about diversity. It's like gender, it's race, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. When you go about inclusivity, it's about creating systems and systemic change where as many unconscious biases become conscious, get removed, so that the process are operating not as a means to filter out by default of some random arbitrary measures, but letting people themselves select in or select out. And this is how we do our recruitment process for candidates, for example. We don't ask for CVs. We don't ask for background, whether they've been to school, whether they've done math or anything like that. We couldn't care less. What we've done is creating an an attraction and selection process for the candidate that is as inclusive as possible. We basically give them material to learn. We don't care where they come from. And because, and that that select, it does select. We all need to select. But it, it selects out by their default, not ours. So if they don't want to do the work, can't be ours, don't feel passionate enough about it, fine. They've decided they don't want to do it. But other than that, we have not set any arbitrary requirements to get in onto the course. What's in standard education, you'll say you have to have finished uh, A-level with certain A's and A-stars and B's. Uh, and, in, and in employment, most financial firms in Canary Wharf will say you need to have X number of years experience for these Ivy League universities and et cetera, et cetera. So for us, we see diversity and inclusivity from the angle of inclusivity. And yes, I do. And I think it's really encouraging to see some major companies now say we might not need a degree in the future and start to hire purely based on what people bring to the table. I think there is another challenge for you know, my own company but is almost 200 years old. And there's a challenge of conversion as well of that talent. So I couldn't agree more with what Ruben has been saying about a different attitude to education and recruitment. But it's then it's that conversion so that we get all the different diverse groups at the top table. But crucially, again, what I would agree with, it's about inclusive. There's no point having people at the top table and they're not t- taking in those th- that wonderful intellectual diversity that you get that drives better financial results and better innovation. There's no point having it around the table if you're not going to use it. And, and to the point about conversion, could you just expand a bit more on that? So I, I think most big companies, when they look at their succession pools, are probably quite satisfied with the diversity of the pool. It's how they convert that to people at the top table that I think is really key. And I think that's where my role latterly as a champion um, 
that somebody else bestowed on me, not myself. Um, I see myself as a champion of fairness. Um, I'm not overly altruistic. Uh, it's about being fair. I want to build a high-performing team. I want us to be a very innovative asset manager. Um, to do that, I need diverse skill sets, and I need those diverse skill sets to be playing. So, uh, yeah, I, I, trying to mentor and coach people through and help them break through that uh, perceived glass ceiling um, and start to convert the great talent that many big companies have into top-level talent, I think is key. And I think that's the bit where the financial industry in particular is is slow. And I think that's a little bit where the log the log jam is. They're, they're two very sort of uh, very different worlds, but they're two worlds that, that must combine if we want to compete, both as an institution, but also as a as a as a as a, a financial centre, if you like. <clears throat> Ruben, do you think about when you look at sk- skills that are coming through into, into your academy, do you look at actually how you take them out on that journey? Because part of it's around skills that you acquire and skills you learn. But then part of it's how do you fit in with organisations that are, in some cases, hundreds of years old? Uh, can you sh- shed some light on how you make your um, students fit for purpose in the financial services world? So, first of all, what we do is, and literally the tagline for the course is learning how to learn. Actually, the, the, the future skills, and again, a problem with the education system is it's about acquiring a specific skill set, but it's not. It should be about a ability to acquire any new skill set. And in the world of software engineering, the problem is the world changed so fast that there is no point training in a specific skill because you'll be good today, you'll be bad tomorrow. So the entire uh, purpose of the course is around learning how to learn. And when we speak to companies and when they hire uh, uh, and work with our engineers, effectively, what they realize is you have people that you can drop problems and they'll solve it. And that's all that matters. Mm -hmm. Because as a software engineer, that's what you spend your time doing. Um, So obviously, because of the business model and how we operate, we make our revenue solely from uh, the employers, whether that's through the apprenticeship levy or, or them taking on our engineers on a day rate for a period of time. Because of this model, that means we're highly incentivized to get them ready, the developers ready, the students ready for the job market. Because if we're not, then the employers are not going to pay us. So, and that's, again, a problem with the education system is that they're not. They couldn't care less. Just as stats. But that's not enough. The business model here means that we have to. So we have to listen to the employers. But the employers will tell us, I want X. And when you say, what do you mean by X? What do you want a Ruby engineer? And actually, you realize that what people want is a great problem solver, somebody that can learn and grow, and that when you invest your time and energy on, that actually grow up on your, on your, on your scale. And so it's about also being able to listen, but also challenge what employers mm-hmm. want. Mm-hmm. Robert? Uh, sorry, I'm just trying to contain my excitement. I, I think that is so important, that learn-to-learn mantra, because what one of the problems I see in the financial industry is that we recruit functional experts, we develop functional experts, and the best of those functional experts, based on their performance, is made leader of the team. And I think that rarely are they the best leader. Usually in, financial, in the financial sector, they've been an alpha male, uh, and they drive their team very much on short-term performance. And they are, I read the wonderful phrase, the frozen middle, mm-hmm. and this layer of middle management that are very, very good functional experts, the best salesman, the best portfolio manager, the best deal maker in investment banking. They are not 
best placed and sometimes lack confidence in their leadership skills to actually break through to allow all of that diverse talent to shine. So I really think this whole thing about learning to learning and developing decision makers. I hate the phrase VUCA, but that is the type of environment we're in at the moment. And having the more flexible people who develop people more holistically, I think is is exactly what the financial industry needs. And it's what one of our problems is. And for the benefit of the listeners who may not have heard that expression before, just, just explain what you mean by VUCA. Yeah, sorry, Joe. It comes from the military uh, world and it's a volatility, uncertainty, complexity and ambiguity. And this is this is something that comes up time and time again in, in our podcasts, which people talk about the frozen middle, the sticky middle, the permafrost, I've heard it called. And... Uh, you know, it and, and it takes some courage actually for that middle management layer to to who have been taught and, and and given leadership techniques in a certain way to have the courage to to say I'm going to embrace change and I'm going to think about things very differently. So therefore, I need to think about how I hire differently. I need to think about how I scope projects differently. I need to think about uh, how I I lead my organisation differently. I'd really be keen to explore of that middle management layer. Where do you see that kind of lightning rod moment when somebody wakes up and goes, I can change? I actually, and, and it's not as scary as I think it is. Have you, have you got some good examples of where, you know, uh, somebody who's come from an institutionalized mindset has really seen the potential and embraced change? At, at Makers Academy, we've worked with dozens of very large corporates, including the financial sector. And there are specific examples, which I think are, again, specific to the tech sector, but I think can be extrapolated to, to, to your question. So we go into a company and we say, okay, um, understand their hiring needs. And then we talk about recruitment processes. And they say, well, that's what we do. It's like, um, okay. And they'll tell us, for example, that they use a, an online coding test that is very time bound. And then we ask them questions and we say, but, but why? Oh, but because we've always done so. Okay, but you told us before that you were looking for X, Y, and Z in your, in, when you were hiring somebody. And part of the description was you want people to write quality software. But you're asking people to, to, to do a test based on the time-bound element. That doesn't represent the work environment you have. And so that, what you call middle management, is able to change when you go through the process of asking the right question through a consultative uh, approach, being able to explain to them, oh, this is what you said to me that you want and need, but you have a tech and recruitment process that is not adapted to what you need. And slowly they realize that change needs to happen. And then we give a lot of examples. There's a famous uh, Harvard Business Review uh, report that says that women are way less likely to apply to jobs if they don't fit 100% of the requirements, whilst for, for, for men it's quite different. So we see job description for software engineers all the time stating exactly the number of years experience, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And when we show them this review and we, sh- we tell them, you're not getting any women in your tech team, this may be one of the reasons, then suddenly you, you light that sort of fire in them to realize that it's a journey to change. And this was just step one. Mm-hmm. And I, I really like that whole point about it. It's, it is a journey to change and, and, and being a kind of open-minded enough. Robert, from a corporate perspective, I mean, again, to the central question about how the middle management are, are, are stepping on that journey to change. Anything you see? I've seen some good examples. And I think the one thing, as they go through their own personal journey from excellent functional, excellent functional leader to seeing the light that there's a new way to lead their team and that they can benefit and their team can benefit from a, you know, a more holistic assessment of their talent. 
I guess the biggest feeling they go through is one of uncomfortableness, if that's a word. Um, you know, one of the one of the best functional leaders I've ever had um, in my team went through a period about 18 months to two years ago, feeling incredibly uncertain when I challenged him to start to use coaching as a style of leadership and start to think more deeply about his talent. Um, he was incredibly uncomfortable initially, came to the came to review at the end of the year and said, I felt incredibly uncomfortable. But oh my God, now I love this stuff. And he's become so passionate about it. Uh, and he does it in his own way. And it was very, very key because initially he was trying to emulate people he saw around him. And you've got to lead and break out of that permafrost, I think, doing things in your own way. And he he's found a little niche for himself now. And he's wonderful. But there are a lot of other examples, I think, where it feels a little bit more like banging your head against a brick wall where people don't get it. And this is where I think the whole point about, uh, you know, really being a champion for change, partly around diversity and inclusion, which is how we kind of started the discussion here, but actually about championing those who are brave enough to take that step and to to get on that journey. And and is that individual uh, remunerated or encouraged or just indeed praised and heralded for uh, having taken that journey and been uncomfortable and and come out the other side is is that is that something that's being showcased? Yeah, from, so for my whole leadership team, we put in place a remuneration structure that reflected this new change in leadership style. Um, but it was definitely the carrot that got him there, not the stick. Um, and I just thought it was it was fascinating to watch. I do think you're right, though, Julia. The the top down vision that we get from from most chief executives is very strong. But that needs to be taken further and further down and create champions. And it is quite uncomfortable. You know, I, in early 2017, put together a day for some of our female talent in my team. I allowed them to create the agenda so it wasn't messed with by a man. Um, and they thoroughly enjoyed it. But uh, actually, it was made quite difficult for me to do that, quite often by, by other um, either males who felt threatened or, or females who thought, why am I not part of that? Or is that special treatment? Is that remedial? Mm-hmm. And it was nothing like that, but it was actually quite difficult. and was quite a tough period for me as well. And, and taking others on that, that journey as well, you, you talk about uh, other senior male executives who are perhaps looking from the outside in and thinking, well, why should we? And why should they have a day? Uh, why, why should we change? And, and that, that, those are understandable kind of emotional responses to to having had a 20-year career in a 200-year organisation, if you like. Um, what, what, what is, has there been anything as you've engaged with them that by bringing them on the journey, they've begun to realise that actually it's not as scary as, as, as you might think? I think the very senior executive in the company, they see the financial benefits, they see the benefits corporate, for the corporate image, and they know this is part of being a socially responsible company. So I guess, I hate to say it, Julie, we're back to that frozen middle again, which is the area that I really think we need to, we need to focus on. One of the things that I'm really interested in exploring is kind of how organisations can learn from young talents coming in. And there's a very interesting dynamic that happens when young talents that have been briefed in a different way and a, to solve a challenge that's been scoped in a different way walk into a financial institution. And there's a lot to bring and there's also a lot to learn. And I'm very interested in any colour around uh, how organisations that need to change are listening and engaging with young talents coming through and where young talent coming through is being challenged themselves about the corporate world? So first of all, um, I'll pick on the word that you use, which is young. 
Um, and I think that's also a, a form of bias we have with talent coming into the market is that they're young. And it's okay, we all have it. Uh, it's the same for the apprenticeship. Uh, we're becoming an apprenticeship provider and everybody thinks of, as an apprentice as somebody who's 18 to 24. But that's wrong. You can be 45, you can be 50, and you can come from all walks of life. So first of all, we see talent as just talent. We don't see them as young or old. The average age on the course is about 28. We've got 18 to literally 62. So when they come into an organization, they may be young in age, they're inexperienced software engineers. So they're junior talent in terms of uh, experience, but they may be super experienced in life. You, can, you have mothers, you have been people who were crane drivers as well as people who were in the banking world, coming back to the banking world, but as software engineers. Um, so, so, so on that talent arriving to the workforce, the thing is, it's all about, it's about creating that change. But what I've seen is that the change can only happen and exist if literally the CEO the equivalent in technology, the CIO, the CTO, have given that sort of uh, order or sort of guidance and vision. Mm-hmm. I've seen so many examples, and in the banking world, we're actually in the middle section, there was a leader, somebody at that level that wanted to change to happen, but because they don't have the support from the upper management, actually fell trapped. Because the problem is large organizations like, like the big banks and Canary Wharf don't change overnight. And if they don't have the vision of change from the top as well as from the bottom, it won't work. And so the best way we like to work with organization is when we've met literally the top, number one, number two, in those large banking firms, and we bring in at the bottom the change. And that's how you, you, you create change, because you put pressure from the, bot- uh, from the top and pressure from the bottom. And that middle management basically changes because they're realizing that the new talent coming in is already part of that change. And... And the management at the top says, well, it's got to change. And, and, and to challenge some of those those, uh, those pre-existing kind of mentalities, as I have just ex- uh, expressed, um, that actually the people who walk through the door aren't necessarily all millennials, that actually they're walking through the door with, with these other skills and other experiences as well, which is incredibly valid. Are you finding people in the later return, stage of their careers a return? Well, I was thinking about breaking that down into, there's obviously uh, there's women returners, mm-hmm. but there are other people who recognise that their skills need to be developed further or I think about a changing career. Very, very interested in exploring and so, or seeing some, some, uh, some of your perspectives around different stages of life, if you like. So absolutely. We, we've literally seen from 18 to 62 people like Simon, who didn't uh, finish school, was a paint salesman in Lewisham, uh, age 23, couldn't do the course. Uh, and so we, we sponsored him. And two years later, he's a tech lead at the Financial Times. I mean, he doubled his salary in about three months' time. Um, as well as somebody who had uh, kids, Margot, she had kids, she had a, a life, she was in the banking sector, actually, then, then had a family. And later on in her life, probably around her 40s and 50s, decided, well, my kids are old enough now, I can do something else in my life, joined the chorus. And she's a successful software engineer, it's back on a career that she started at the again, the bottom, but within two, three years, it's already at the mid-level uh, direction. Now, what's interesting, and I think the last, the last one I want to share here is around the apprenticeship levy. So the apprenticeship levy came in, and that's very relevant to the corporate sector and definitely to the financial sector amongst the largest levy payers in the country. And today we're working as an apprenticeship provider with the large uh, uh, financial uh, institutions to retrain their internal staff. So they're paying this levy and they're saying, well, I've got this pot of money. How can I use it? And so we're having a conversation with them by saying, 
Well, an apprentice doesn't have to be an 18 to 24-year-old. You have plenty of incredible talent in your organization. Send them to us and we'll retrain them for you, which means that when they come back, they come back fresh, new skills. They may be later in their careers, but suddenly you re-energize, re-launch their career into something new. Yeah, I think I think Ruben's point about creating pressure from the bottom up is also key, uh, and that can sometimes be the toughest thing to do. So we we did an exercise just prior to the merger. Uh, we counted and we looked at my team, so my global product team and Standard Life Investments was forty five percent female, uh, and we did focus very much on gender. My leadership team, however, was only fifteen percent female and one hundred percent based in the UK. So not probably what you'd expect or reflective of a modern global financial institution. So we did the exercise of winding the clock forward and saying, who's going to be running this team in seven years' time? Who could lead it? And that future leadership team was 45% female, so bang in line with the population of the team overall, and 45% non-UK-based, so much more reflective of where we wanted to be. And we were going to set that group up as a shadow leadership group. Um, so we would give them the same challenges as the leadership team faced, so the same strategic challenges, the same talent strategy challenges. And they would be there as a devil's advocate, a challenger, and, a, and just, I guess, a different perspective against the leadership team. So we then went through a massive corporate merger, um, which probably stopped that for a few months. But just just last uh, last month, we ran an offsite for my new leadership team, and we ran this group that we uh, inventively called The Others um, in the same hotel with the same agenda, exactly the same format as the leadership team. And we got some fantastic ideas that us older, say older guys in the leadership team probably would not have come up with by ourselves. So that it's starting to increase the pressure. And I guess allowing those uh, future leaders of the team to start to build their legacy before they even get the keys to the castle. That's a perfect moment to turn to Cynthia and to Robert, who have been looking out for industry research to support the discussion. When it comes to harnessing talent in financial institutions, it's not just the potential employees that need to create a good impression. Here are some comments from unimpressed candidates following their interviews at financial institutions recently published by recruitment firm TOM. The interviewers were 20 minutes late. Interviewer A couldn't make it, so someone else came to meet me. An urgent meeting came up, so they had to postpone my meeting, but I wasn't told until I arrived. Something urgent came up and the interviewer had to leave early. According to the blog's author... The best way to secure top talent is to showcase the best and brightest throughout the whole of the recruitment process. Transitioning is one of the most private things a person will ever need to do in public. The ACAS report, Supporting Trans Employees in the Workplace, provides evidence suggesting that trans staff with high educational attainment and extensive labour market experience have been turned down for jobs after face-to-face interviews or had offers withdrawn after disclosing their intention to transition. 16% of trans respondents had chosen not to apply for work because they anticipated bullying and negative treatment and 9% did not provide references for reasons related to their gender identity. 
Thank you, Cynthia. Thank you, Robert. And the links and references to the research can be found on our website, www.diversitypodcast.com, where you can also sign up for early notifications of future episodes. Please do follow us on Twitter at DiversityPod. And remember, it's diversity with a C, not an S. And you can find us on all good podcast channels. And if you've enjoyed the show, we'd really appreciate a rating. It all helps promote the episodes. Uh, Ruben, Robert, let me come come back to our discussion. I was very interested in this whole thing about driving change, particularly around getting through the middle management layer and, of course, training programmes galore around thinking about diversity, thinking about unconscious bias. Do you think that's effective? So I'm not sure it's the most effective or the only thing that needs to be done, but it's one part of the key to the puzzle, so to speak. And, I mean, we have experience having trained some of our clients with uh, someone called C.N. Lester. They're a UK leading transgender activist, the author of a book called Trans Like Me. And they ran a workshop or a training for an all afternoon for a large client of ours around unconscious biases to the, through the lens of transgender issues in technology. And the useful part here was to use the lens of transgender to realize how much you don't know about a community, a world that you may not have come across. And and people left the meeting not with solution, but realizing that there were so many more questions to be asked. And it's a lens. So most people have never met or come across transgender people. So they don't realize what it entails, what it means. And, and part of the process that CN led those, um, the, the middle management of the client figure out is to realize, A, what you don't know. So it's the classical, you don't know what you don't know. Be aware of that. And two, where do you get your source of information? And I think that unconscious biases exist always, will do. But the process to change is to realize what can you do about them? How can you uncover them? What can you learn about those biases? And in technology and through the lens of transgender, we realize that, you know, you realize through that journey that, yeah, there are a lot of things that, that needs to change. I'll give you a very specific example. I discovered an island personally through this process. A, a lot of trans, transgender people need to go through a, f- some forms of surgery. This means that they can have gaps in their work history. Now, most financial sector and firm will not treat that well. Any person who has a m- gaps in their, in their CVs and their work history is seen very badly, but sometimes for the wrong reasons. And that is already a bias. It's like there may be a fairly good reason as to why they're doing it, but by not being able to dig in further, you realize that you ostracize an entire community of people that would be excellent for your work, but because of nature of some arbitrary measures, simply can't apply. And that, that ties in very neatly with uh, a guest we had on a previous um episode called Samantha Jane Nelson, who is transgender. And she was telling us a very similar story about how corporates look at their need, needs to look at some of their corporate um, policies, actually, and think very differently about them. And I think that's a really good, shiny example of where uh, a lot of that bias naturally and almost understandably historically has come from, but the world has shifted. You know, people need to look at the world through a very different lens, which is which I think when you come down to Again, this topic about championing change and being a champion uh, within a corporate environment is um, clearly part of that is about leadership. Part of that's around actually being very self-aware in in that journey for change. Um, Robert, I I, I would look at um, I, I sort of keep coming back to sort of why this matters. And as a leader within an organisation, very senior executive recognised as, as as a champion, um, what what do you tell your subordinate? middle management leaders and layers 
to think about? And, and why do you think this matters? I think if we start with the output, there's so much research out there that says that companies that have diverse leadership teams that embrace and empower diversity, I think, again, the empowering is very important. They have better financial results. Their return on equity is higher. Their profitability is higher. And whilst the the levels may vary from country to country, the trend is really clear. So this works. Um, So I think starting by educating on the output, and again, I always think the carrot of the output works better than the stick of the quota. And so I think this is a business imperative. We have to get it right. So the first thing, you know, I'm trying to build a high-performing team in a newly merged company. What a great opportunity to take stock of the talent you've got and the way that you manage and develop that talent. And I, I think you're right. So big corporates take training on unconscious bias incredibly seriously. And that's about building the self-awareness. And I don't see myself as a champion by any means. I see myself as a coach of people. And to be a coach, you need to be passionate. I always think about two things. You've got to be passionate about teaching and developing people. But you've got to be passionate about those people themselves. And to be passionate about them, you really have to understand them. And you have to take time to speak to them. And, And this is not a transaction. It's a strategic partnership where you're trying to plot a future. Um, and I think we do have to be able to accept more flexible working practices. Who wants to miss out on that star returnee from maternity because of some unconscious bias that she may only work four days a week? One of the best leaders in my team only works four days a week. My biggest challenge I have is in making her not trying to work five days a week. Um, so I, I really think I am a coach are not a champion. And the more that we can get leaders to accept that when you put your hand up for a leadership role, you are a coach and you're there, you're there to develop your people and help them reach their potential, regardless of their background. And, and if you think about the industry as a whole and where the, um, you know, sort of where we are economically uh, at this moment, as we sit here recording uh, the first quarter of 2018, thinking about, you know, what the world's going to look like in perhaps a year's time, Obviously, with Brexit, I don't. Want, I don't want to ask you to, to comment on Brexit. Uh, I don't think that would be appropriate. But you know, there are shifting dynamics happening around us. I think that's an absolutely fantastic point, Julia. That we, it's so well proven that at a microeconomic level, so at a corporate level, that diversity drives better results. As you've pointed out, the UK economy is stuck in a low productivity rut at the moment. Surely, one way to do that is if a micro level. Being more diverse drives higher return on equity. At a macroeconomic level, embracing diversity should um, cause that productivity to head north. So I think this is definitely a microeconomic issue. You could argue it's a macroeconomic issue as well. Robert, Ruben, uh, thank you both so much for joining us. I'm, I'm enormously hopeful, actually, uh, as, as we c- conclude the show today, thinking about you know kind of new models of skills development and looking at the world the way in the world is, is changing. I am enormously positive that with champions such as yourselves, the world will continue to change. Thank you both so much for joining us. Thank you. This episode of Diversity Podcast was produced by me, Kieran Yates, on behalf of Julia Streets Productions. Thanks to Cynthia Akinsanya and Robert Pinto-Fernandez for their insights. You can find out more about the guests on this week's show on our website, diversitypodcast.com, and that's diversity with a C, not an S. Whilst you're there, you can also sign up to our newsletter for all our latest updates. To be sure of catching all our future podcasts, subscribe to our feed in iTunes or your favourite podcast app. 
And if you've enjoyed this episode of Diversity Podcast, remember to give us a rating or review. It all helps promote the show to a wider audience. Finally, our Twitter handle is at DiversityPod. Thanks for listening.